Hey, this is Carl Franklin. And this is Richard Campbell. And before we start the show, we'd like to bring your attention to some cool conferences happening around the world. Specifically, NDC Sydney, happening August 14th through the 18th in Sydney, Australia. Now, I personally can't make it to Sydney this year, but you're going, right, Richard? Absolutely, I'm going, you know, because Sydney. Uh, yeah, awesome. I wish I could go. So go to NDCSydney.com and register now. And for more great NDC conferences, go to NDCconferences.com. Right. Welcome back to .NET Rocks. This is Carl Franklin. And this is Richard Campbell. Again, one more time with Rocky Latke. It must be his like 25th, 29th. 60th time on the show. I don't know uh, what he. I think he gets a frequent guest card at some point. He does. I don't even think we need to introduce him. It's Rocky again. <laughs> <laughs> hey. Um, well, you know it rained today. Okay, moving right along. Nice. Actually, I have some. We're we're here to do a recap of Build with Rocky, which is always a really good thing. I have flashbacks to the tablet show. Uh, you know, in builds of of your, but. Uh, this was a totally different build, and I have something for Better Know Framework that goes along with it. Awesome. All right, dude, what do you got? This is an article in the Washington Post. Microsoft has fully acknowledged that you will never use a Windows phone for work. There wow. it is. It's dead. That's interesting. Dead, dead, dead. Basically, this is something Satya said at, at Build. And uh, that's it. I mean, there's an article, and there's more stuff about it, and some of their other cool things that they showed off. But basically, when it comes down to it, they've, they, they have no Windows phone. That's it. It's done. That's very interesting. You know, I always thought they had a strength at, in the office as well. Yeah. But, uh, well, I wonder if that's just a positioning for something new coming. Maybe. Yeah. Every, you know, every time we go to build in the last few years, it's been like, are they going to announce a phone? Are they going to have a, f a phone, a device? Somebody actually told me that, and it was, of course, BS, but um, who knows? But there you go. Washington Post says Microsoft has fully acknowledged you'll never use a Windows phone for work. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. That's what I got. Who's talking to us, Richard? Grabbed a comment off of show 1156. So I jumped back a little bit. That's June of 2015 mm -hmm. when Rocky was talking about .NET being everywhere. That's really the beginning of the whole open sourcing of .NET and the cross-platform versions and so forth. Yeah. Of course, there are lots of comments on this show. Uh, and uh, I'm going to grab one that's two years old. This is from Vic, who says, uh, Hi, guys. Great show. Love the discussion about XAML and then the talk about phone app creation. How right. serendipitous is that? I thought that HTML and the web were going to be the one standard way that we were deploying to now. Hmm. Instead of writing apps that run on Windows, we have four web, Android, iOS, Windows, or WinPhone, or universal apps, whatever you want to call it, hmm. different ecosystems to target. What happened? Where did we go wrong? My head is spinning. Yeah. Boy, that yeah. was two years ago, man. So let me tell you, some things have happened in two years. A couple of things have happened. <laughs> Just saying. Uh, I mean, just heard Carl talk about WinPhone. I don't think we have to worry about that too much. The whole universal thing is still trying to get straightened out in a better way. We've yeah. got Xamarin on board now for Android and iOS. Certainly yep. the web is still there. 
But I think one of the important things that came out of Bill was this concept of a XAML standard, which to me says they are trying to bring all the flavors of XAML together once and for all. Yep. And that includes Xamarin Forms. And that's something that you've always said, (coughs) Richard Campbell. Yeah, it had to happen. And and Rocky. Yes. I heard you cough there. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. Just going to call it out. That's Trying all I'm going to do. Trying to hold his tongue over here. Yeah. Just can't happen. We'll let him talk. Vic, I read this comment because I knew it was going to be a big part of what we were going to talk about today anyway. So thank you so much for your comment. A .NET Rocks mug is on its way to you. And if you'd like a .NET Rocks mug, write a comment on the website at .netrocks.com or via any of our social media because we publish every show to Facebook and Google+. And if you comment there and we read it on the show, we'll send you a mug. And definitely follow us on Twitter, okay? I'm at Carl Franklin. He's at Rich Campbell. Send us a tweet. We read them and then toss them into the drawer of broken dreams. <laughs> with Mobile all, commentary with right With all there. the Windows phones <laughs> and flip phones and all that. All right, I'm going to introduce Rocky. Rocky Lotka is the CTO at Magenic, one of the nation's premier Microsoft Gold certified partners dedicated to solving today's most challenging business problems. He's the creator of the widely used CSLA.net open source development framework and is a Microsoft regional director and MVP. Rocky speaks all over the world at conferences and user groups, and he's here on .NET Rocks quite a lot. And here he is again, Rocky Lotka. Hi. Hi. Thank you. I did do the count. Show number 19, my friend. That many. That's wow. a lot of shows. Wow. And I think only two of them are about how you're wrong about Moore's Law. Ah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to try and steer clear of that today. Duh, duh, duh. <laughs> Let's not go there today. <laughs> All right. Well, anyway, um, build, huh? You know, Rocky, before we get started, I want to relay the experience that we just had in the last hour. Can I? Because I think it's kind of germane to what we're talking about. By all means. Yeah. So I decided to try a web-based podcast recording thing. Hanselman's been talking about it, of course. I tried it this morning, and it worked fine with two people. We got a third person on there, all sorts of echo and weird stuff that we couldn't figure out. Now, I'm an audio engineer, so I did the diagnostics. There was nothing done wrong. And uh, I couldn't figure out what it was. I ended up having to edit uh, everybody else out of the guest's track. So it didn't really buy us anything. Then we tried it again. And crackling and weird problems and stuff that we couldn't figure out again. And then uh, Richard switched to a different microphone. And now all of a sudden, Rocky's got echo in his ear. And it, it just didn't work. It's just not there. And, you know, this is a web app that's trying to do the job of a Windows app. You know, something that needs access to the dedicated hardware using the HTML5 audio API. And uh, for whatever reason, it just didn't work for us. So not to say that it never works and it does fine because some people use it just okay. But it really speaks to the point that for so long now, the websites and web technology has just tried to do so much in that little document browser, you know, with this HTML, CSS markup language that uh, it's just gone to a whole different level now. And some may say it's there some of the time, but I don't see it there all the time. Discuss. Nice. Well, (laughs) you got to try and fly at the sun. If you're really going to see how high you can fly, right? Yeah, you're right. So, you're right. 
I, I appreciate someone's taking chances. I, I admit our setup, because we have more complicated gear than most, are going to be especially challenging. You know, right. If everybody just had a Rode Podcaster, probably wouldn't be all that hard. Well, even if you have a Rode Podcaster, you still have to record it. And, you know, the thing I have, I got to say about what we've been doing here with the podcasting, we've been doing it for what, 15 years, 16 years now? Something like that, yeah. 14, 15, and, you know, basically centered around Windows technology. And that has never happened. Like, we've never had problems like that. So, just saying. I think, I think if you step back, though, there's a kind of a bigger issue here in that the browser slowly but surely is becoming the, uh, or is trying at least to become the, uh, uh, essentially the client operating system. Right. Right. And, uh, of course it's an operating system that sits on top of other operating systems, but, um, realistically what they're trying to do is say, Hey, you know, you don't need to care about Mac, Windows, Linux, you know, nothing. You just write to the browser, um, and, and every, everything will work. (laughs) Right. It's a virtual machine with JavaScript as its language and CSS HTML as its UI layer. And, and as an idea, that's not at all bad. It's not bad. I, I think it's kind of a odd starting point to say that, that a glorified PDF viewer from <laughs> you know 20 plus years ago has <laughs> has become our our new operating system but yeah you know. uh, i appreciate the whole idea of, of the the progressive web app does seem to be trying to turn the browser into a smart client but it's still got things it needs and stuff it's missing and yeah. uh, standards that aren't being complied with like it's not a simple thing to get all this right true well let's talk about build shall we what uh what did you like? What did you not like? What is exciting to you, Mr. Mr. Mr.? Well, I got to say my top, I, I agree with your kind of lead in that, that it was an odd build. It felt, it, it was good. I, I enjoyed myself, but it was not normal. <laughs> <laughs> I, I what mean, is normal? The, well, yeah, I don't know. But the keynotes, I thought, most of the really meaty uh, announcements and so forth weren't in the keynotes. They were actually yeah. in sessions. Right. And at least from a developer perspective. And the keynotes were much more uh, inspirational and big picture. True. And I'm okay with that. I think that's perfectly awesome. But it is not the pattern that Microsoft has followed in the past. And so I guess that's the where it... it was a little bit different. Oh, you know? were you pining for Sanofsky Con? <laughs> no, I actually think this is awesome because yeah. I, I'm, I'm a fan of keynotes that are inspirational. Sure. And, uh, especially the day one keynote with the, uh, Emma, uh, device to help Parkinson's yeah. and the, uh, uh, both scary and exciting demo of the construction site with the, you know, cameras and uh, cognitive services monitoring the people and the tools in the work area. Well, let's, um, un- let's unpack that for a minute. The uh, yeah. Emma device was something that um, a researcher, a scientist f- discovered about uh, a woman with Parkinson's was that certain vibrations on her wrist could steady her hand when she was drawing or writing. And so she made a device and a prototype 
and uh, made it work. And I, I guess I guess it runs Windows, doesn't it? Well, I think it uses uh, cognitive services to to do some of the prediction. Was my understanding? Oh, okay. Um, the device itself, I, th- I think, is connected to a Windows PC that does the local work. Yeah, I see. But the device, the device mostly is a set of of little. I forget what they were called, Pico motors or something like that, Mm. that, uh, vibrate. And some people that I talked to were speculating that it was actually those, they were counteracting the, the, you know, um, muscle movement that Parkinson's have. But I, I don't think that's true. My understanding was that it, it is actually uh, some sort of short circuit. So it vibrates and, and tricks the muscle or the nerves, uh, into stopping themselves. Mm. But I guess it could be either way. It wasn't clear, but um, it's fascinating. It was it was fascinating and amazing to think that I think that they said it took like six weeks of of work to put this together. Right, and uh, um, and it just goes to show the if you are willing to tap into and, and probably have access to people that really already know these APIs. But if you're willing to tap into existing APIs and and uh, a little bit of hardware engineering, you can clearly do some amazing things. You know, Satya seems to be on a on a vector lately of using technology to make the world a better place. And I'm not saying that Bill Gates never did that, but we looked at Bill Gates with a different lens than we look at Satya, don't we? I do. Yeah, I think Satya is a geek, but he's almost like a geek with a purpose, Mm -hmm. uh, like a higher order purpose. But we also don't look at him as the richest man in the world, you know, and you can't help it when you look at Bill Gates and talk, he can talk about all the altruism and doing wonderful things for the world. But, you know, in the back of your mind, you're always like, you know, I wonder how much money he's making per second, you know. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, he went on to prove himself worthy, of course, of, of, you know, being able to change the world by actually doing it. But he also separated it from Microsoft. I think it was almost a a weird schism that his charitable works were totally independent of his work at Microsoft. Hmm. I think Satya simply combining the two in in a way that I think is a little more normal. Well, I, or I would hope, I mean, I think it's at least inspirational because you would hope that more people in Satya's position would take the opportunity to, uh, kind of use their powers for good. Right. <laughs> right. But yeah, I, I'm trying to compare, um, think in my mind uh, about Bill Gates, you know, 20 years ago and Satya now. Yeah. Because Bill Gates, after he semi retired and, and really focused on the charitable stuff, um, has a substantially different focus oh, than yeah. the, the Bill Gates of legend that would, uh, you know, they have the infamous Bill G reviews for, for, uh, you know, product ideas or, or bits of software where he'd, you know, be yelling and yeah, people come know, out of those meetings with their hair on fire, right? Yeah. Yeah. You know, and, and, and clearly it worked, right. They yeah. were able to build an you know, office and windows and, and, you know, at least for a period of time become an effective monopoly. Um, and ar- arguably they still are in a way, but you know, we probably don't need to go there too much, oh, but, well. um, but yeah, Satya's whole style seems to be much, uh, you know, and, and maybe he does go into meetings and then do that, but it doesn't seem like that's his style. No. It seems more like his, uh, he's, you know, trying to build a community of, of, uh, 
you know, you basically get people aligned so that they're motivated in the same direction mm. by choice rather than by coercion almost. Well, the second demo that you mentioned was the workplace demo. So they had cognitive services again. Or is there a new name for cognitive services now? I think. Oh, I is. can't keep up. They were Cortana services. Something. And new. I, yeah, okay, I'm not well, sure. The first thing that came out of that whole piece was there's now an AI group at Microsoft. Yeah. Led by yep. Harry Shum. So essentially what you were doing was watching people in a workplace and there were cameras everywhere that were identifying objects in the workplace and identifying people in the workplace. And when an unauthorized person picked up an object they weren't supposed to, you know, alerts went off and people got a text, that kind of thing. And it yep. was it was interesting because it was all within the context of work safety, which made it okay, but it was still a little creepy. It was. And I thought that, I mean, there's probably multiple levels to this thing. You, know, you talk about unpacking. One is that leading into this demo, clearly Microsoft and, and Satya knew that it was a little bit creepy. And so he actually talked about um, social responsibility. He had a slide um, leading up to this with the uh, book covers from 1984 and the Brave right. New World. Right. Um, he talked about the, these you know, two uh, dystopic, two possible dystopic futures, neither of which that we really want. Um, and then, yeah, they couched this in the in the context of workplace safety. They were the cameras that they were several times pointed out that these were uh, consumer grade cameras. They're right. very possibly the same cameras you already have in the workplaces. Right. And all these video feeds were just being pumped through, uh, you know, the Azure cognitive services, um, and being able to do facial body recognition, tool shape recognition, and, mm. uh, then running through and, you know, and applying a set of rules about who can pick up which objects and, uh, yeah. just scary as hell. And yet very inspirational too. They right? did a, they did a healthcare thing where somebody was having a, I don't know, a heart attack or something in a hospital and it located the nearest wheelchair, right? And the yep. nearest person who could bring that wheelchair to that person. So uh, I like the chemical spill version too, that, you know, something gets knocked over that somebody didn't notice and suddenly, you know, it's, I know what that, the machine's saying, I know what that is. I know who can clean it up. I know who needs to stay away. So you respond so much more quickly. Right. And those are really great use cases for this kind of stuff and stuff that anybody would give control over to machines to, to help us with that stuff. It, it's kind of got an uncanny valley effect, though, too. Right? The same way with the robots where it looks when it, you're trying, as long as it doesn't look lifelike or human-like, you're fine. And if it's perfectly human-like, you're fine. But if you're sort of human-like, it's super creepy. Yeah. AI seems to, the, this whole technology oscillates in that. You're like, wow, that's really cool. Holy cow, that's super creepy. Maybe that's why people like bots, because they're just text, and we find text kind of impersonal anyway. Yeah. Just not that same level of, of freakout around that. Right. Thing. It's not a it's not a anthropomorphized kind of robot that looks almost human that's trying to talk to you like a buddy or a pal. Right. The issue here is when the system communicates to you and says, and, and essentially is saying without saying it, I'm watching you. Right. But if it's saying I'm watching you and I got your back and here's, here's a couple of ways in which I've saved your bacon today, 
Hmm. Okay. It is quite a social trade-off though, because the, you know, what really what they were demonstrating is a limited implementation of a, of a, I think this goes way back into the maybe Greek times, but this idea of a panopticon, hmm. uh, which is, uh, was originally a social theory and then later a, a, a type of basically prison or something where you uh, are able to have a watchtower that can see into everybody's room and watch everybody at all times. Right. And so in theory, then nobody would ever do anything bad. Um, <laughs> but I'm right. um, not sure that's actually true in practice, but in any case, you know, you certainly give up all privacy in the hope of, of having some security or safety or something. And that's what 1984 was all about. Yep. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It was just a little early. <laughs> so, I, I, Hey Rocky, give us a sec here to, uh, pay the bills. This episode of .NET Rocks is made possible in part by Windows on the Google Cloud Platform. You may not know this, but the Google Cloud Platform supports Windows Server 2008, 2012, and 2016. It also supports SQL Server versions 2012, 2014, and 2016 standard web and enterprise editions with high availability. You can deploy your ASP.NET Windows apps to Compute Engine or your ASP.NET Core apps to App Engine or Container Engine. That's Google's hosted Kubernetes environment. .NET and .NET Core libraries are there for all 200-plus Google.com and cloud services in NuGet, led by John Skeet of Stack Overflow fame. But what about Visual Studio integration? Oh, it's there. You can use Visual Studio to manage your GCP resources and deploy your existing apps. You get stack driver logging, error reporting, and tracing support for .NET and .NET Core. PowerShell commandlets for GCP, which run on Windows and Linux. And a great set of partners to bring your Windows and .NET workloads to GCP, including Capgemini, Nudesic, and Magenic. So go to gcp.netrocks.com and get your free trial today. And we're back, and you're listening to .NET Rocks, talking with Rocky Laka about Bill. And all the wonderful and weird things that we saw. I guess the question is, like, on the workplace, I just don't have a big problem with the privacy thing. Hmm. You know, at the same time, if a spill like that happens, the company's also liable for anybody being injured by it. So, you know, everything we can do to protect them is is relevant. But does this mean that everybody's sitting in a uh, cube farm and working in some one of the big banks, you know, if you need to uh, scratch your private parts because you have an itch that that that's going to get reported to your supervisor or depends is scratching your private parts at work, uh, against the rules. Well, (laughs) somehow illegal. So even if it's not, is some, uh, it, you know, worker somewhere going to have set up their little rule to route that off. So that no, 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 your parts need to have protected scope. Nice. Yep. Yep. I'm just, (laughs) but you're right. This, any technology that's, that's going to actually make a difference has also got risks to it. They frame it in the context of a workplace and I get that like a, like a construction workplace, but I've worked for a, Mm -hmm. you know, through as consulting to, to a big bank and in, in my view, their treatment of, of their employees and contractors was harsher than most uh, dangerous workplaces that I've been. They're like, you know, got to do drug screening and, and uh, basically even to walk through the door as an employee, you have to have given up more privacy to work at a bank than you would ever to work at a, uh, you know, 
like a factory or whatever. And I right. suppose it's because right. they have access to people's money or whatever, but still all of a sudden, I mean, like, wow, I, I would never want to permanently work at a place like that, much less a place that had cameras that were spying on me constantly. I want to jump back just for a minute to the, when you were talking about the cameras they were using in this demo, they were just regular, you know, 1080p cameras that everybody has on their laptops or whatever, and they're in the workplace. And we know that from the, 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 the people we've talked to about, you know, image detection and computer vision, that low resolution photos are actually better for uh, recognizing objects because the shapes are more, um, how should we say, less detailed. And it's the details that can really throw you off. And here's a good example of that. You ever use Photoshop and you use the magic wand and you're like, oh, I want to change this person's shirt color from blue to red. And so you click on the shirt and you get some weird, you know how the magic wand tries to select everything that's pretty much the same color. But, you know, if there's too much detail and too much variation from pixel to pixel, it just sort of splays out and you only get a little bit of it or maybe, you know, so all the stuff that's really dark blue and all the light blue doesn't work. You know what I mean? Doesn't get included in the mask. It's kind of like that. You know, if, if the, if it was a lower resolution, lower number of colors, then you'd be able to see shapes easier and be able to detect those shapes uh, much faster. So they actually want to use low resolution pictures to recognize objects better, you know, more than they would high resolution pictures. I just thought that was an interesting comment. Anyway, now that we've ground the conversation to a screeching halt. <laughs> yeah, I think, you know, to, to kind of flip it from something that's both inspirational and scary all at once to something that, that at least I thought was really cool. And I'm not even sure made it into a keynote at all, but the, um, this idea of serverless computing, which mm -hmm. is a horrible phrase, but yeah, you know, basically, uh, spin, spin up, uh, a little bit of computing power long enough to run a function and then let it go away. Right. Uh, so AWS lambdas and Azure functions, um, are great examples of that. And Microsoft during build, uh, came out with a whole bunch of stuff around Azure functions, um, including, uh, some support in visual studio 2017 that's coming in the, what's well, in the preview now, but it'll be in the next update. Yeah where you can build Azure functions in visual studio with, and then just do normal programming, referencing NuGet packages, referencing your own class libraries, um, and then deploying them up into as an Azure function, uh, and having Azure functions run not only in the public cloud, but also on windows server. And then maybe on, uh, actual PCs as a long student and advocate of distributed computing, um, I'm also a really strong advocate of platform as a service and having abstract uh, containers for my code that are not subject to the whims of random IT people or anybody else, right? And Azure Functions, to me, are, are almost the perfect example of, of what I'm after, right? It's like a, a predefined, pre-scope.NET container or, or JavaScript or Java. I mean, a whole, you know, but in, in I'm a fan of, of .NET, right? So a .NET container, and I can just say, hey, run as many of these things as you need to make everybody happy. Yeah. 
and um i don't know i i'm really quite excited uh, that was a little teeny announcement that had a couple sessions um outside of the keynotes and having downloaded the uh, visual studio preview and played with uh, the updated tooling um i i mean i was excited before but i'm i mean i think this is going to be a big wave in the future or i hope it is nice well, I, I can't disagree with you. It's sort of getting down to the essence of your code, right? This is all I want to do. The rest is plumbing. Just do it for me. I don't want to hear about it. Right. right. I mean, your function gets called based on a trigger, and they keep adding more triggers, but already, you know, uh, based on an HTTP call or a file being dropped mm -hmm. in a folder or a, a row being added to a table or a message in a queue, you know, all, a lot, but most of the common things that you would care about can trigger your function. And your function gets handed the parameters appropriate to whatever triggered it. And then from there, you can talk to databases, other queues, make, you know, call the web, you know, you know do your normal coding. And I'm just like, wow, I don't have to write all of the plumbing in my app. I can just write the business code. <laughs> right. There are a few caveats though, right? Anything that's a long running function something that processes a video or is going to, uh, you know, do some data analysis that's going to take a long time probably isn't a good candidate for a function. Well, there's definitely some cost factors that go into this. Um, yeah. you know, and, and so maybe, maybe not though, because after you can start running functions in your own server, instead of in the public cloud, the cost different, you know, costing models might change for that too. Right. But part of the attraction is that for your normal, uh, and it doesn't really matter who's cloud, if I run some sort of a service in the cloud, it's always sitting there consuming uh, cloud resources, even if it's idle. So all of the cloud vendors charge by clock hour. Right. And functions charge by invocation. So if I have some piece of code that only runs occasionally or, you know, whatever that means, um, rather than paying for it 24 by seven by 365, if it only gets invoked 20 times a day, maybe it's a lot cheaper to run it in a function, right? Even if it runs for a longer period of time. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. Well, and again, cause you're not really taking on the dependencies of any of the configuration or anything like that. You're just saying it's all configuration is code in terms of how it's going to run and how it's going to stay alive. Right. Yeah. And I think personally, I think I look at, at Azure functions combined with the, uh, service bus capabilities that are also built into Azure. Yeah. There's this conversation that I have with a lot of, uh, customers and, and other folks about, you know, they, everybody wants to go to the cloud one way or another at, you know, at some speed, right. or at least they're evaluating. And, you know, do you take your existing code and move it into the cloud or do you actually build, you know, something that I would consider cloud native and, you know, and right. in my mind, cloud native implies that you build it leveraging the features and capabilities of the cloud. Right. So, yeah. You're not running VMs necessarily, although you, you might if it's appropriate, but you are also going to use the service buses and the... Um, well, that's the thing. Know, At what point do you yeah. stop using functions and you go to all the way to uh, service fabric? You know, those are the questions. I mean, there's so many ways to do cloud now that it, it takes someone like you, Rocky, 
to come in and, and analyze what they're doing and figure out which way they should go. Yes. Well, <laughs> that's, that's what I try to do. Certainly. Yeah. And, but you're right. There are. And then of course there's this, uh, counter movement in, in a sense that says, well, if I do cloud native in Azure, then I'm stuck in Azure. Yeah. Right. And so maybe I should be neutral. I should write everything using Docker containers and use my own service bus right. or some, you know, and I understand that, but at the same time, that, that harkens me back to the, uh, kind of mid 1990s with Unix where, you know, there were all these flavors of Unix, each one of which strived to gain customers by offering some really compelling features. Right. But, and, and, and you know, organizations would be like, well, I'm going to go with unit, you know, blah, 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 Unix because of these great features. And then they realize that if they use those great features, then they have vendor lock-in, which was the whole reason for going to Unix in the first place was not to have vendor lock-in. Yeah, we had right. the same problem with Visual Basic yep. custom controls, right? Yep. In the back in the day. Hey, Richard. Yeah, buddy. Guess what time it is? Uh, it must be that happy time again. Yeah. It's time to open a FedEx package I got today. Let's see. What's, what's in here? Oh, <laughs> someone sent me a box of diapers. Really? I wonder which daughter is pregnant. <laughs> You're making fun of this, but I had this experience. <laughs> oh, no, really? Not that one of my daughters was pregnant, but we kept getting things that were like letters that said, your baby should be three months old now and doing this and this. Try this formula and try this product. Oh, no. One after the next. Every time the package arrived, oh, and addressed to me, by the way. Oh, really? Yeah. And I'd look at my daughters and say, anybody want to tell me anything? Did you go to a diner and order a glass of Similac or something? I couldn't tell you, brother. Oh, I have no it's, idea. But. It's actually time to give away a D-Experience subscription from Developer Express to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. Become a UI superhero with DevExpress UI controls and libraries and deliver elegant .NET solutions that address customer needs today and leverage your existing knowledge to build next-generation touch-enabled solutions for tomorrow. Whether it's an Office-inspired application or a data-centric analytics dashboard, DevExpress Universal ships with everything you'll need to build your best without limits or compromise. Learn more and download your free 30-day trial at devexpress.com slash superhero. All right, buddy. Who's our winner? Today's winner, Richard, is Lars Stolwick. Oh, congratulations, Lars. Yes. Golf clap for you, sir. Yeah, golf clap for Lars. Lars just won the D-Experience subscription. A big pile of awesome from our friends at DevExpress just for being a member of the .NET Rocks fan club. And if you don't know what that is, go to .netrocks.com, click on the big Get Free Stuff button, answer a few questions, and join the fan club. We have thousands of members all over the world. In every show, we like to give away stuff from our sponsors. And every December, we give away a $5,000 technology shopping spree to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. But you have to sign up to win. And now, Rocky, it's your turn for the 19th time. If you had $5,000 to spend on technology today... What would you buy? And I think I know what you're going to buy. Should I guess? Uh, you can guess by all means. A Surface Studio. That is probably my number two. Ooh. I, I, those studios, man, are just so gorgeous. Pretty. I agree. Beautiful. But I think that I'd probably go for a high-end uh, desktop VR rig. Oh. 
at this point. Although, yeah, the thing is that's changing so fast that you're almost like, boy, if I spent five grand on it now, next year I'd want to spend five grand on a new (laughs) one, right? Yeah. Well, and five grand will get you several of them too, right? Even the the Oculus and the Vive, they're only a few hundred dollars, six, seven hundred dollars. You need about oh, a $2,500 machine to run yeah, them. Yeah, that's the thing. That's where I was going. That's yeah. right. And, but yeah. still, you could, so you could buy a high-end machine and then like one of each headset. That was also right. one of the build announcements too was the, the Asus and the HP headsets. Yeah. Yep. I think are yep. interesting. Have you seen those, those yet? They, they had them all over the exhibit hall. Yeah. Um, the, those uh, VR headsets and pretty awesome. Yeah. I, you know, and, and I think this is the thing is that VR is the price point is just too high. It's, it's right. in the you know exclusive range for hardcore gamers or whatever. Yeah. Um, but maybe $300 is going to be low enough that mm. it becomes, you know, that, that approaches the cost of a video card. All I know is that I'm the hero of the neighborhood because I let all the neighborhood kids play with the hollow lens in my <laughs> living room. They come over. Can I play robo raid? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, yep. I, and I don't even know if it's the price that's the problem. I think the price is the complexity. You don't know if you're having the right experience. Like getting all the pieces together is just too complex. Unless it's all in one, like the Holland. Did you see, Rocky, the Microsoft Research article about the things that look like glasses, but they've got a spectacular field of view and holograms and everything? Yep. Yep. Using a, some sort of laser-based technology. Something. Makes me think of uh, Snow Crash, a novel yeah. by Neil Stevenson. Yep. <laughs> not, not exactly the same way he described it, yeah, but, yeah. you know, I mean, this is the, the idea. It wouldn't be inconceivable to think that we will all end up in some virtual equivalent of the street here in the near future. Actually, one of the coolest demos that was going on at Build that you had to get into was a combination. There was six to eight people in the room at once, and... uh all but two would be wearing VR headsets, the Asus ones, and two of them would be wearing HoloLenses. Did you guys see this? No. It was in a little no. private area. You had to get in. A, it was very tough to get into. But all the ones in VR headsets were looking for objects in sort of a 3D world. Yeah. And the people with the HoloLenses on could see that 3D world on a tabletop and could see the folks with the VR headsets moving around and could help direct them. Ah, so, yeah. So you had this God's eye view, and then you had the on the ground view, using the devices together. There have been some video games that have done that over time, and they they work well if the uh, uh, kind of tactical in-game players actually listen to the God players. Right. Otherwise, it's not so good. It's not so good. (laughs) But you know what's compelling to me is this idea that there, in in any project, whatever you're doing, there's a head up roll and a head down roll. More head down than head up. Both are valuable. You know, both magnify the ultimate goal if they can synthesize their work together. So to start thinking about that in sort of a 3D way or an interactive way with multiple machines, I think it's it's very compelling. Yeah. So this in my mind kind of ties in with this uh, bigger strategy picture that Microsoft is putting forward about mixed reality where, you know, the, the windows 10 desktop or PC surface, whatever, um, windows 10 VR, and then HoloLens, uh, AR all in kind of 
have a common programming model and a common approach. And it'll be interesting to see because everybody else is trying piecemeal, you know, targeted approaches. And so, uh, I guess the market will decide (laughs) in a sense, is it, is it better to have focused 100% on VR through dedicated headsets or is this Microsoft strategy of allowing us to write, uh, reusable, large reusable chunks of code, um, that can run, uh, you know, in a VR or a two dimensional projection on a PC screen And then with probably some alteration work in an AR setting, but you can reuse a lot of the assets. Um, It seems compelling. For me, my experience, I don't know what yours has been, Richard, but my experience in using the VR sets where you block out the world has been more difficult to believe because you're only using your your visual senses and maybe your, your ears as well but you're tactile, like you can't see your hands, that kind of stuff. And if they figure that stuff out, it might be better. But the reason that I like the the AR is for a different reason. It's portable. Whereas VR, I feel like I'm tethered to something. Or even if I walk around, I'm not sure where I'm walking because I can't see the real world. Um, so I, th- I think they're different applications. Maybe sitting at a desk or sitting in, or standing in a certain place or walking on that 360 treadmill the VR stuff is compelling, but but I find that uh, being able to just walk out into the world and experience holograms is is much more liberating. Well, I think that's true. I guess my my point with the mixed reality is that the APIs are consistent, so the programming, oh yeah, the skills are are consistent. But right. I agree entirely that AR and VR, the 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 use case scenarios are radically different between yeah. the two. Yeah. If I want to be immersed in a world, VR. Yeah. But he, he, even the HoloLens has an uh, app on it where you can take a Holo Tour, you know, the Holo Tour app, which tries to put you in a world. Like you can go to Machu Picchu and look around in all directions and you see this little window of, you know, of, your, of, of what you can see of it. And as you move around, you see different parts, but you're still in your kitchen. It's kind of hard. Yeah, I don't I don't know how far you want to actually spend that, right? Nobody talks about motion sickness with HoloLens, but certainly for some people, VR is a challenge. Right, yeah. You don't have that problem because you can see You always have a world. reference. Yeah. Yeah, I got massively sick with my... Uh... Although admittedly, you had the dev SDK You're version, right. which was right, not as fast as the production one. Yep, yep. Um, but, you know, we've been talking about these... I suppose aspirational technologies almost yes. um, other than I think Azure functions is more immediate and tactical. Um, but during the lead in Richard, you talked about XAML standard oh, yeah. and it, I think to uh, that, that may be the biggest news, <laughs> even though it was just, again, a little blurb. It's like, yeah. Oh, and by the way, we're doing this. Um, but you know, right now the world and, and I, this isn't going to change fast if ever, but right now the world is super fragmented, right? Cause you write web apps kind of, well, you write you know, web apps on the browsers, but then when you write them for a phone, they have to be responsive and maybe they won't work well cause they're too slow. So you do a lot of tailoring work and then 
you want to have an actual app experience. And so then the web, you know, you say, oh, I'm going to wrap essentially the web tech in uh, Cordova or Electron. And, um, you know, Cordova seems to be losing popularity because it's hard to make it fast enough Mm -hmm. to be really good. And Electron at the moment is having a heyday, right? Um, Slack and Teams and VS Code, you know, there's all these Electron apps, but um, I find when I run them, uh, they're resource hogs, like big time. Um, And so you can't run more than a couple without a really big computer. But what's the alternative? And there really hasn't been uh, any common language that went everywhere that you could get. But now XAML, were, were there a XAML standard or when there is one, and it becomes realistic to think that I can reuse a lot of my at least basic XAML assets from phone um, all the way through to PC onto uh, Mac. You know, if I can get everywhere that Electron and Cordova let me go, only I can do it with C Sharp and uh, XAML, that to me seems really quite compelling. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And, and of course, this, having a XAML standard is, I don't want to say it's aspirational so much, but because they did the same thing with, the .NET standard, it's they set a point and then it takes time for everybody to build to that point. Right. You know, I don't think we're really going to see the benefit of .NET standard until we get to 2.0 because that's I the totally one where agree. a whole bunch of flavors of .NET are now going to be the same standard. So you should be able to pick up your code and run it in any of those places and it should work. Yep. Let's face it. The C-sharp code works today. It's really just the the UI layer that we're talking about here. Well, from a XAML standard, that's true, right? Yeah, yeah. When I think back to when I first saw Xamarin Forms, and I wondered why it wasn't just called a text block. Right. You know? And somebody pointed out to me at Build, I think, well, maybe they didn't want to get sued. Maybe there was a, a threat of being sued by Microsoft. Because remember, they weren't all that partnery back then. Is that a word? <laughs> It is now. Yeah, they weren't partners. They didn't own Xamarin. And so, you know, maybe it was just a cautious step because they obviously could have done that. But, you know, then they would have maybe another reason why they didn't do that is because they have a very limited set of properties for these objects. I don't know if you've seen them, but when you do IntelliSense on a Xamarin Forms uh, UI object, you get like 10 items, 10 properties, not the slew of properties that are implemented for most XAML objects in WPF. So, so they may have been, you know, trying to just allay all of those mixed expectations by calling it something totally different. Well, and it's possible. And I, I think probable that uh, XAML standard will be maybe only 10 or 15 things. Sure. Right. Um, yeah, because it's going to be whatever they can come up with that can be a common subset across WPF, yeah. UWP, and Xamarin, and um, and it'll be it'll be interesting. They've got some serious challenges because uh, Xamarin Forms currently has a pretty radically different data binding model from everybody else. Yeah, so they're going to have to normalize that. But then the flip side is that Xamarin Forms has this really um, amazing extensibility 
custom renderer uh, yeah. model, yeah. which they can't get rid of because that's how no. they get cross-platform. Sure. But then how are they going to express that back into, um, or how much of it will get expressed back into UWP and WPF too? Xamarin Forms also has some really cool binding features that WPF doesn't have. Like text expressions, rather than use or binding expressions, I can actually just put uh, something in the text with markers instead of having to do a value converter. Uh, that's just a little nice feature that doesn't exist in WPF. So I think what we're going to end, I'm, I don't know what we're going to end up with, but it's possible that what we're going to end up with in XAML standard is something that breaks everything. In other words, you, you you will have to have a converter to move WPF to XAML standard. You have to have a converter to move Xamarin Forms to XAML standard and everything in between. Uh, I don't see how there's any way around that. No, I don't either. And I think that's fine, though, because right now it's – I'm not aware of another viable alternative – to the uh, Electron Cordova React Native yeah. kind of JavaScript family of uh, ad hoc solutions to right. get a cross platform. Right. And that's a mess too. I mean, let's not kid ourselves, right? Sure. Um, so if it takes some time and a little bit of pain for us over the next, I would guess, two or three years to get to a point where um, we have a functional uh, XAML standard, you know, do we honestly think in two or three years that the JavaScript world and HTML worlds will have come to some unified standard? I'm not even, I don't even think they're trying. So right. I'm mean, going to guess no. <laughs> well, and in a lot of ways, JavaScript has been the improved part of the web development stack. JavaScript is dramatically oh, yeah. better in its latest versions. But CSS oh, yeah. is still not a happy thing. Well, it's feature rich, but it's just still. It is what it is, right? Yeah, it's it, it seems like the weak link in web development. Well, that, but it's also amazingly powerful if you figure yeah. out how to use it. Yeah. So yeah, it's a double-edged sword, I guess. I just, I, I wish it would also be nice. You know, kept, kept, <laughs> yes, IntelliSense, maybe? Statement completion? Yeah, you get that in VS Code. You do, yeah. Yeah. Um, you know what we haven't talked about from build is uh, fluent design. Mm. Yep, that looks pretty sexy, doesn't it? It does. Yeah. It it seems to me it's like a swing back a bit. You yeah. know, we we went so flat after the sort of I, I was collecting together some slides, trying to think about how do you express fluent design. And I remember when Apple made that bookshelf for the iPad. They, they, they went full out skeuomorphic yes. where it was literally a wooden looking bookshelf with each book cover side by side. And you're looking at going, wow, that wastes a lot of screen space. For it was, no like, good it was like Microsoft Bob with a, with a hipster beard. You're damn right. It was, it's exactly <laughs> That's what, what I was, was. going to say. That's and what then I was going to say. <laughs> but then you compare that to win eight where it's like primary colors, everything <laughs> is flat. The icons are all twitchy like a five-year-old on crack, right? <laughs> hey, click me, click me, click me. But it was it was overdone, and, and Fluent seems to strike the balance. Well, a little skeuomorphism, a little bit of affordance, but not so much the ultra-flat stuff. And it looks beautiful. It's I remember really when they first talked about WPF and some of the examples they had of UI, and I thought, yeah, that's something that I want to use. So... I guess the proof is in how easy is it going to be to implement? You yeah. know, I mean, that was the problem with WPF, wasn't it? 
Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But I, I do think they're on the right track. You look at the number of um, iPhone apps that have adopted aspects of material design from Android. Yeah. In order to kind of get at some of the, uh, you know, because I, I, I think a lot of people like a lot of the material design aspects and the, mm. some of the um, depth and, and texture that it brings. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, we, I guess as a, maybe as a tech society, we went through our flat phase and we're, <laughs> <laughs> we're ready for something a little more, uh, aesthetically pleasing. Yeah. A little, a little more, you know, sense of depth sense of, well, now I'm actually quoting the sort of five aspects of fluent design, right? You know, the other yep. piece that really hit me about the fluent design part is a, it's not done. And that to me is kind of a surprise coming from the windows team. Sure. Cause they do tend to simply deliver, Hey, here it is. Go use it. And neither and, is XAML standard for that yeah, matter. It's well, just XAML an idea. Standards, we've got a build to it. It's it, times ago. But if you go into the docs section for fluent design, every page has comments on it and people are talking about how fluent design works and the teams are responding. Hmm. Which and, is awesome because that, great. you know, this whole openness that Microsoft has just wholeheartedly embraced originated largely out of the kind of cloud Azure group and, mm -hmm. and to some large degree also the, you know, the web and visual studio groups, but it yep. has been so slow to penetrate into the XAML, uh, you know, windows development and, and windows groups. Yeah, and, yeah. uh, it's really, it needs to go there because in my view, at least, um, they need to be more responsive. You know, I, I, uh, Arc Magenic is adopting, uh, teams. Uh, and one of the reasons that I'm so excited about, uh, wholesale adoption of Microsoft teams is because the teams product group, uh, basically seems to live on user voice. Nice. I mean, the, the, the level of, uh, give and take with their, their community, which is, includes me, right. Yeah. It is just phenomenal. And it's just, I am willing to overlook some of the rough edges in the product because I know that they know that they, that those rough edges exist and that they have them on their roadmap to fix. Right. right. And yeah, it kind of brings the customer and Microsoft together in a common purpose. And, um, the more that the, the windows group can do that, I think the better, especially given that their primary competitor in a lot of ways, uh, is Apple and Apple still is in that, you know, we're, we're completely separate from you consumer people mode, right? Sure. There's, there's no give or take there. Of course, now I pissed off all the Apple people in the world, I suppose. But. <laughs> well, you know, one of the things that Carl and I did at build is we were with all these other podcasters, right? We had some iOS podcasters, things like that. And talking to those guys about Apple tells us exactly nothing. They won't even admit that we exist. Right. It's very interesting to just think, how do you, how do you make a show week after week with just no contact with the company? You know, the funny part is, in some ways, this is like, this is the old PDC Longhorn era where they were sort of showing us everything they were doing, mm -hmm. except I think that was almost irrational exuberance because they were talking about stuff that just wasn't built yet and didn't work yeah. yet. Right. And here they, they definitely showed working bits, but not finished bits so that we can be a part of the process. To me, this was the contrast between day one and day two of build because mm -hmm. on day one, 
so much of the focus was on things that either are shipping or are, are literally about to ship, you know, all, all of these cloud services and, and, you know, cloud capabilities, graph APIs and all that sort of thing. And then we got to day two and, and it's true, right? Usually the windows group is all as, is especially, you know, since windows eight has been kind of almost to some degree emulating Apple Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, not telling you anything till it exists. And all of a sudden they're like, well, actually we're going to tell you what we think we're doing with the fall creators update. Right. And we got this aspirational XAML standard thing. And we've got this, you know, kind of half baked, uh, fluent concept that looks really kick ass. And, um, you know, they didn't even in the keynote talk about windows 10 running on arm, but there was one or two sessions about it. Right. Um, you know, but windows 10 running on, on arm processors so that you've got, uh, you know, it, it may be true that windows phone, uh, as we know it is gone, but windows running on, uh, snapdragon, you know, low power tablet or phone type hardware is clearly something they're working really hard on. Mm-hmm. I got to tell you, I got to tell you guys something. I try I went looking for the cheapest Windows tablet I could find. And I found it at walmart.com. It was obviously made in China. $69. Wow. And really? It's a 7-inch Windows 10 USB powered device. It's slow, but it's a USB powered Windows 10 tablet. Crazy. $69. Hmm. Must be running an Atom chip, I would guess. Yeah, it's an Atom chip, yeah. Wow. But uh, I tried to use it as a uh, a Skype machine, you know, in the booth here. And uh, the only problem that I had with it, it ran Skype fine. And once I connected a USB hub to it and got an audio interface and everything, it worked great. And there was no delay or anything like that, but it was just really, really effing slow. Hmm. And that's the only reason I can't use it. Yeah. But as for as for a, a second machine that you're using while just, you know, you're playing games while you're sitting in the living room or something, it's perfect. Yeah, the span of hardware is pretty interesting. And I think we, we're we running out of time. I, I did want to talk a little bit about Project Rome and Microsoft Graph, mm. but it's a, it's a huge subject unto itself. It is, but I think, too, it, especially the Project Rome part ties in with this concept of the windows phone and does it have a future Mm -hmm. and and i don't know the answer to that i think none of us really do but i it's pretty clear that project rome is microsoft saying you know uh at least this i I shouldn't say it's clear it's clear to me this is my (laughs) my my view on this is that if you think back all the way to when microsoft created odbc right in the early 1990s. A bunch of people are scratching their heads right now, Rocky. <laughs> well, I'll, I'll explain it because Microsoft did not have a horse in the race when it came to databases at the enterprise level. Right. Yep. Um, at that point in time, there was no SQL Server yet. And so all of us that were talking to databases would use custom DLLs or code to talk to Oracle or Sybase or whatever our database was. And, and switching from one database to another was almost inconceivably hard. Yes. And Microsoft not having a horse in the race other than windows came along and said, Hey, you know what? How about if we help you all solve that problem? We'll create this universal database language 
um, called ODBC. You talk to ODBC, ODBC will talk to Oracle, ODBC will talk to Sybase, and we'll make it so that switching from one database to another is really not so painful. Just a configuration. And the database vendors, of course, fought tooth and nail because they lost, stood to lose and did lose their vendor lock-in. Mm-hmm. Um, and so now I think it could be to the, you know, maybe I'm being a little hyperbolic here, but it could be to the world's advantage if Microsoft does not have a horse in the phone uh, game because they're likely, and, and Project Rome is certainly a step in this direction, to help us create a set of APIs that allow me to write compelling apps that do really amazing things with backend services independent of whether I'm running on Android or iOS. Right. Yeah, and, I agree, Rocky. But you know, the corollary to that story, Rocky, is after they got ODBC up and running, then they did get a database in the race, and you could move to it. That's also true. That's <laughs> and, and maybe that is part of the strategy here, too. That's mm. very possible. Mm-hmm. But even in the short term, this idea of, of being able to write apps on the iPhone and I put stuff in a clipboard and then I can on my phone and paste it on Windows or mm. um, already. And uh, what I thought was interesting, if you run Cortana on your iPhone like I do mm-hmm. already, um, when I sit down at my Windows 10 PC, it'll pop up in the action tray and say, oh, do you want to resume viewing this web page or you know, some of the things that they demoed? in the it, at build um they already have the seeds of it built into cortana today yep it's interesting you, you are seeing these elements and i want cortana to be better i don't particularly care for amazon's approach to these devices but uh we, we still got a ways to go rocky we're almost out of time but you know it's traditional with your shows to go a little bit long i don't know if you've noticed this trend <laughs> <laughs> so is there anything burning a hole in your brain that you just need to get out? Well, the only thing in my list that we haven't talked about and, and Richard just mentioned it is Cortana mm-hmm. and, uh, the Cortana skills capability. Uh, yeah. in fact, and, and the, all the stuff from build with skills and Cortana inspired me now to go out and get an Amazon echo, um, which I probably the last person on the planet to get one, but. I have one now yeah, and, and it's fun and it's cool and yet it doesn't integrate with my life the way Cortana does. And so I'm pretty psyched actually about the, uh, ability to add skills to Cortana and, you know, extend Cortana, which I already use a lot. Yeah. And then they didn't even talk about it, but they had these little Cortana speakers on stage, the oh, Harmon yeah. Carden ones were on the stage during the keynote and they, they used it and didn't even talk about it during one of the demos. I thought that was showed amazing restraint. They, they um, talked about it a little bit, but, um, not, not, not a lot, but they did hint at it. And I noticed there was a lot of buzz just among people that I talked to about them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I'm quite psyched about that. Uh, and yeah, you know, so yeah, you, know, you think about being able to, not only like you can already have Cortana and, and I do, she monitors all of my flights and trips and packages as they're being delivered. I've, I've turned on all these options, right. But also having Cortana be able to, uh, help me schedule meetings with people even outside of my company by looking at calendars or, or at least trading emails and having, uh, um, 
you know, ad- adding some of these skills around, uh, uh, various other services so that people can add stuff in. I can even imagine stuff at Magenic where we could add sure, in write your own skills. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Hire Rocky and, now. <laughs> and and the, the, the clever thing about the, the way that they built the skill system is that it can at least sit directly on top of their existing bot SDK. Yeah. So if you write a bot and then for, for maybe Messenger or Skype or, or both, uh, and then later on you say, oh, and by the way, I think I'd like it to work in Cortana. It's mm. almost just flipping a switch. Right. Wow. Yeah, very cool. Well, Rocky, it's always great talking to you. I wish we could talk for hours here. You know, all we're missing is a little scotch and some more time. <laughs> uh, both would be great, wouldn't they? <laughs> all right, man. Thanks again. Thank you. Right, and we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Plop Studios, a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and, of course, in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one, recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Got a transmitter band by the FCC. Yes, I'm a... Oh.